Culture eats strategy for lunch, and informed cultures drive decisions and inspire action. At the Data Culture Podcast, we talk with execs, visionaries, and data experts so that you may move from idea to outcome in your own data culture journey. Welcome to the Data Culture Podcast. My name is Sid Atkinson, data culture innovator and consulting leader with over 21 years in data. With us today is Christina Tilbork. Christina is a senior intelligence technical specialist at Microsoft, focusing on health and life sciences clients. She has a strong history in working with clients to establish governance and innovation, both as a consultant and inside larger organizations like AT&T and Travelers. Christina has a passion for empowering innovation across the organization and at the end user level, while also balancing the need for security, governance, and organizational awareness of usage and innovation. Welcome, Christina. It's exciting to have you on today. Thank you, Sid. It's great to be here. I'm happy to be a part of this podcast and uh, definitely looking forward to speaking with you today. Excellent. Christina, when we were talking earlier about the many different things, there was one topic in particular, uh, and that was around centers of excellence and how we might encourage structured innovation and, and safe and governed innovation, but also you know, innovation that can, can break things in the right way, <laughs> as we might say. Um, but there's a story there on how you landed us. So it landed on that as your topic. So if you would, walk us back to when you had that first epiphany around governance challenges and data content creation, you know, problems that your clients can create. You might not have known to call it a center of excellence at the time, but you observed patterns and anti-patterns in clients that led you to see this need. Can you, can you walk us through that, that observation? Absolutely. So, you know, at the time, this is years ago, I was working as a consultant and we had mm -hmm. a lot of customers coming in with some serious challenges when it came to their data governance. And it was not just data governance, but it was also, you know, other things like applications and flows as well. And a lot of the people that were coming to us, organizations were like central IT departments that were seeing these massive sprawls of just data and apps and flows everywhere. There's just no organization to it. So, what we call it is like the wild, wild west. So you have, <laughs> uh, you know, people building things all over the place with no real governance behind it. So, you know, there's these organizations had a desperate need to find a way to organize and put guardrails up for all of this massive amounts of data that was out there. And these are big organizations that we're talking about. So this is what introduced me first to what the center of excellence was. And I can explain that more, but it, it, it's, it's tools and processes like this that will help organizations figure out how to put those guardrails up and how to manage their users and, and the types of data that they're creating and the types of reporting they're creating and data visualizations and so forth. But, but before we get too much into what you see now as like ways to do it, you know, when we were talking about this prior, you were, you, you mentioned just some very visceral reactions you had when you saw like, what were your clients experiencing when these problems that you noticed, these, this, the content sprawl, the data sprawl, you know, there were, either they came to you directly and mentioned their problems, or you as the, the neutral third party observer were able to see the problems there. So walk us through a little bit of like that mess you saw them going through and, and what it, how it impacted them. So it, it, it's a couple different ways, but what I see mm -hmm. first is there are organizations that came to us directly for help because they knew mm -hmm. that there was a problem. 
they could see the sprawl of data. They could see users just creating workspaces here and there. And they just like, we need help. We need, we need someone that's going to help us organize um, a way to govern the data that they're seeing. And then there was other mm -hmm. cases where we were able to see different types of reporting, you know, and, and the reporting that we're able to see is different than what the, the client can see so that we're able to know, oh, look, this, this client is, is dealing with a, a massive amount of data from many different workspaces. But in particular, though, we do have the clients come to us and explain their pain points so that we can help them push them in the right direction. Yeah, and in one of your stories, when you're mentioning workspaces, just on the, the for for folks listening, the the you're referring to almost Power BI workspaces, yes. right? Which is like the pen the penultimate of you know end user analytics creation. And I think one of the one of the things that is both the beauty of the cloud and cloud uh, is that you can quickly spin up infrastructure or go provision something to solve your problem. And but that's also ungoverned, unchecked. That can be a pain because you end up with spend and content out there that is that can go at the pace of Microsoft's capacity, not your own internal data center. So it can get big quickly if it's left unchecked. And so that was so when you're saying workspaces, you're talking about all these analytical workspaces that the client just massive sprawl. Yes, yes. there's a lot of problems with that where there were just there's no way of governing workspaces that were being developed with many in workspaces also some people know them as environments within a tenant mm -hmm. and and just a massive amounts of data and apps and and i mean it, it was just endless so they just needed that additional help and what we call that in a lot of respects especially when it comes to data that's not being used anymore that's considered technical debt mm -hmm. so what we're trying to do is mm -hmm. pull back that technical debt and help them streamline what their users should be doing within the organization when it comes to data governance and, and, and data creation and report creation. Because we're, you know, we were talking about Power BI before. And it's interesting, I think in the app dev world, people understand technical debt very well. Um, in the data world, it is becoming more commonplace nomenclature. And, and you know, you see, and in, even in like the SharePoint or the document management, the information collaboration space, it's a well-known thing. Like lawyers and, and are very well, with, very well versed on retention standards for documents, but we haven't typically thought about retention standards on analytics, right? right? A lot of the, the, the larger um, governance players, whether it's, you know, Purview, Calibra, Alation are thinking about this, but so did your customers come to you asking for that or did you have to walk them or it was probably a mix of both? It was a right? mix of both. Some customers came and they kind of knew what they wanted where others we had to really walk them through the process. And a lot of that had to do with us just analyzing what they currently have today. What has been mm -hmm. orphaned? What has been, you know, unused for a certain period of time? What can we remove? What should we keep? What are our priorities? Yes. So you use data to solve a data problem. Yes, we did. Yeah, data on data. <laughs> <laughs> data on data. Mm -hmm. So now as you, as you, you know, walk from being a consultant to now, and, and for folks uh, listening, can you give them the perspective on like, how many different clients, like what's the, the, the span in which you were able to observe today? Because, you know, back when uh, we were together at Talon, 
you know, you work deeply with customers. Now at Microsoft, you're working broadly with customers. And so that lends to different kinds of observations. So what kinds of observations are you able to make at Microsoft now that you weren't able to make before? So with my previous consulting, I did work very deeply with clients. So I would be able to go deep into their dashboards and their data with my Mm -hmm. new role as a technical specialist in Microsoft. I get a, uh, a plethora of new clients that will come in and ask governance questions. Now, from my prior experience from consulting, I was able to pull in those tools to help them better govern. And some of the ways of, of mm-hmm. doing that is by providing, we provide suggestions and training and learning when it comes to governance. So we're not actually going into the systems that we went as a consultant to help them re-govern their workspaces through IT administration. Mm -hmm. This time what we're doing is we're providing guidance on the tools, how to um, better promote adoption, how to train other users on how to use the products. We will go through um, how to evangelize and become more of a data-driven culture within the organization. And also just coordinating efforts on those organizational boundaries that need to be in place. So, and I, my clients span, I have almost a hundred clients. So it's a Mm. lot of it, it's a (laughs) lot of clients. So I I do provide the guidance and then that's something they would take with them. And if they want to take it further, they can take it further with a consultant if they'd like to. So, but those are the, some of the steps that I would take to help um, these customers in, in my, in my calls with them. Yeah. So, so we walked, you know, from a major sprawl. I mean, so that was actually one of the first stories you went to is a very data eager culture that you observed, but then a massive sprawl of analytical content out there, absolutely unchecked, which, you know, that was the big light bulb moment that went on. And so then now in your, you're both going deep with clients and observing many clients, you have kind of learned more how you would frame the problem. You know, so what, understand did you gain to name and frame these data governance challenges uh, so you can have you know more insightful conversations with your clients? Well, so I, I really look at their their goals right now. So I name and mm-hmm. frame by figuring out, okay, what what is the the true pain points that they have? So for instance, if we had a, a, a particular client that had a very large report sprawl, we would take steps mm-hmm. to figure out, okay, so we would work with our IT administration, their IT administration, to figure out ways that we can maybe go and into their tenant settings and turn some things off and then also and then establish mm-hmm. some guidelines that need to be taken. So maybe they would need approvals or permissioning before that they, they could start to build out anything that's low code, no code, as an example. So that's really what we were looking at. And that's how we would frame it is just going through a discovery session with them to figure out what they need and then taking appropriate steps to solution it. It's interesting you mentioned like, ter- you know, sometimes taking away the capability. I-, I have frequently used that as a step myself to see, well, who really needs it, right? And I learned that years ago from, <laughs> there was a little trick uh, in, a, in at Dell when I worked there as an employee, they would frequently slash the budgets. And it wasn't that they actually wanted just to stop spending money on different things, a lot of it is, it was a kind of a trick by finance to see who came back and asked. Because they figure if you came back and asked after your budget was cut, that you might actually really need it for something. 
because every time I had to go re-justify where I had planned to utilize funds, I always got it back. Nice. <laughs> so it and it was, but it was it was their it was their little kind of trick to see what well, who needs this. And so you mentioned like, hey, turning off some settings. And it's like, well, you know, if it's easy, I might just go do it anyway, even if I don't really need it. If I have to ask, or you know, and 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 you and the kind of the goal is make the friction low, right? It's like so you don't want you don't want you don't want it to be very low friction when they raise their hand to to see what happens. Right. Right. But as you go through this, you know, the, these center of excellence and these governance ideas, you know, there's many ways that they can play out. So what are your observations on how some of these, you know, models play out inside um, your company? There's this whole federated versus central and a blend. You know, so what are some of these ways that you see your clients play this out? So there's a few different ways. Now, federated versus central, we're looking at a centralized governance versus a more business unit governance. So some mm -hmm. of it, I'll, I'll kind of step it back a little bit just to explain more about the center of excellence and, and the tools that we use and mm -hmm. how each group does it. So, for instance, we, we do is we kind of we look at their landscape and we want to strategize their governance. Mm -hmm. And then we want to see what would be the best practices for them. Now, whether it be a business unit or whether it be the full organization. Typically, we would want to do centralized. We would want this to be full organization wide because it's easier to control versus each particular business unit. It really depends. But then we would provide mm -hmm. training and support and we would get that administration in place. We would look at their challenges and find the right advocates for their challenges too. Because what, what the Center of Excellence mm -hmm. really is, it's a group of experts. They're power users, they're administrators, they're what we also call the champions of their particular mm -hmm. organization or unit. And they're the ones that are going to help to evangelize and train and standardize these groups so that they're following the right processes when it comes to data. So they're, the, they're going to be our enforcers and they're also going to do community projects and, and so forth. Yeah. That's really what it's about on both levels. Now, do you, what, what are things that you see that lead to low adoption of analytics? You know, or that impede the adoption of analytics inside some of your customers? When they don't have the, the right tools available to them and they don't have the right resources or the right kind of communication. So there's less adoption when there isn't advocates that enforce it more or if there isn't really as much of a need. Now, those, those are things that we can't control. But for the most part, with right. most low code, no code, it's, it's accessible to most users. They, they know how to use the products. So it's just a matter of, getting these communities together to say, hey, we have training. Hey, we have some office hours available. We have something that will help you draw in some more interest. Maybe you send out some emails, newsletters about things that are happening right now that they can start to pull in and say, hey, this is a nice idea. I'd like to try this for my department or my organization. Yeah, I, I and similar to what you were alluding to there, I found the same thing. Most people are curious. Most people do have questions. And, and so when you walk into a company and a culture, if there aren't questions happening, it's typically because something about the organization has made it hard to ask those questions. Uh, and so when you, you, know, you mentioned a couple of really important aspects to encourage that question asking again, if, if the question asking has died out inside a company for any, any reason whatsoever, a variety of reasons typically, you, know, you talk about champions and I think. So what are some important, uh, whether somebody has a federated 
you know, central or a blend. Um, I typically refer to the country we live in, you know, that we have a federal model and we have the states, yep. <laughs> you know, so something, yep. So you typically sometimes have governance that happens by central IT, uh, you know, which might be analogous to the federal government. And then all your BUs, which are allowed to do some, some measure of governance, content creation, all these things inside, right? Whichever model you see a client, what are, what are things that you see make for great champions to encourage, you know, question asking again? So I think um, if IT takes a role in uh, the this, this centralized mm -hmm. way of handling this, I think that they, they bring a big portion of this. And it's the power users for each, say, each business unit. If you have like a dedicated mm -hmm. person that is going to be there to mentor, to train, to provide community community aspects or service to the units or the departments, I think that's the best way. So if you had that group of experts, mm -hmm. but then you had individuals that are willing to work in departments that are still going to push that message of standardization, I think that works really well. Plus also some units may have their own, they take from the main standardization, but then build a spin on it for their, their business unit. It's, it's a sometimes a tricky situation because every organization is very different on how they they standardize their data. So when you walk into, you know, the center of excellence, and we talked about, again, federated versus central models, there's a center of excellence, as you mentioned, there's roles across the company in there. You have IT roles, you have power users inside there. But who owns that center of excellence? And you, you can, you've seen that from different aspects inside your clients. Who manages? You know, does the center of excellence actually belong to someone? Yeah, you know, what's been your observation? So the center of excellence has usually belonged to cent centralized IT in most cases. Mm -hmm. And then there are some times when they're just owned by power users and evangelists. So they, they are the ones that are, have been using the product for a very long period of time. And they have a lot of skills and expertise. Now, if you want to talk about staffing a COE and who really should be part of it. Mm -hmm. So like good candidates really are people that understand the organization. They, they want to improve the practices for the organization. They have a deep interest and expertise in the field. They mm -hmm. know how to effectively use and adopt the, the product successfully. They take initiative to learn mm -hmm. and grow. They are ready to always share knowledge and they, they understand the standardization that's needed and they're really hyper-focused on it. So like we, we look for people that feel comfortable with the product as well and, and we're, are more likely to spread the word to, to others within the organization. And they're really well, really good communicators. And, and I love how you actually started with attributes of what this person or, you know, these people should have versus where they live. Because everything you mentioned, you know, that highly engaged, knowledgeable individual, you know, you and I have both seen somebody who knows the business, business and, their, and the business well, but actually living inside IT. But we've also seen conversely where somebody, you know, that is very deep in the business and the operations and how it works and understands the customer and has wonderful technical skills and can be that perfect evangelist and COE member that you mentioned. Yeah. So I, I love that you use attributes to describe the person versus roles or where they sit. Yeah, that's really the main key because the roles can change. And really we're looking to see the experts that can translate the business needs into solutions. That's really the main part of this. Yes, it's being solution driven is the key component there. There was another um, individual listening to his podcast yesterday and talking about 
folks getting wrapped around the axle and describing data products and the whole data mesh concept. And, and that this tendency of, of trying to drive down to a very engineering mindset in the data product. And in his mind, the, well, the question around what is a data product is really simple. You know, I don't care whether you're trying to describe, you know, the customer entity and this different things. It's like the data product is something that's usable that answers a question for the business that somebody is actually willing to pay for, right? Whether it's an internal customer or an external customer, right? Yeah, that could be actually be a list of customers, but it's more likely something that describes the customer and the customer activity, right? And, and not just, you know, this discrete engineering unit, but this discrete problem outcome unit. So, and you're, you're describing the same concept. So how are you engaged in helping, you know, your customers today? What do you observe going on in the industry? Um, and, and what are you doing to help, you know, either the customers uh, or see them doing to help themselves through these challenges? So in, in the industry itself, obviously data is exploding. And especially with the mm-hmm. emergence of AI, data is more important than it ever has been and in machine learning. So data is a huge goal for all organizations right now. So we're seeing a huge uptick on what's needed from a data governance perspective. So what I would do is I provide the support and guidance towards uh, data reporting and visualizations for these organizations Mm -hmm. that need that guidance. They also, it's mainly to reduce technical debt, like I had mentioned earlier, add consistent Mm -hmm. ways to use the data and report on it. And adding those guardrails for ways to add permissioning to data. So you can grant users the right permissioning and the admins can control it. And then another main goal is promoting adoption and doing that through training and also the self-service opportunities. And there's, I mean, and that's, that's endless. And not only myself, but there are others within Microsoft that provide some really great training and in, including our partners as well. So we definitely look at that as an option too, to help organizations. You mentioned training so many times in this conversation, yeah. and it, it's frequently an overlooked piece. Right? We're getting to, the, I think, this tipping point, I feel like. Uh, maybe, it, maybe that tipping point is going to happen in the next few years. But you know, how often do we think these days about training somebody to use Word? We don't, we don't right? And, you know, it's not even something that people, I hope, I haven't seen it on a resume in a long time, but, you know, probably 15 years ago, people would put Word and Excel proficiencies on their, on their resume. Nowadays, if you're going to put anything related to Excel or Word on your resume, you're going to be putting something very advanced, you know, like, hey, I can do advanced statistical modeling and predict when the weather's going to, you know, drop in a bucket of rain on your house, right? Like, okay, that's cool. Not that you can use Excel. But today we list that we can use these end user tools, um, you know, whether it's Tableau or Power BI, ThoughtSpot, Spotfire, whatever it is, you, we actually feel compelled to list these capabilities. But do you think that we're going to actually have to list that? You know, like some point, I feel like we're going to move towards that data proficiency is expected from anybody inside the organization. You know, and so you mentioned training a lot. So, so if you, I'll, I'll pause. Yes. You tell me why you keep mentioning training. Why do, you, why do you mention training so much? Because what we're trying to do is we're, we're trying to promote self-service with these products. Mm-hmm. And the only, I mean, there's many ways, of course, you can train yourself, but yeah. by providing more of a self-service option by training, that gives us 
a better adoption of the product. And eventually, uh, you know, like Excel, it's going to be one of those products that people are going to know and be able to use. And maybe mm -hmm. it won't be on a resume anymore because it's it's almost expected. And with, like I mm -hmm. said before, with the emergence of AI, I see that's where everything is going to be moving towards. So I could see this being part of our regular data culture. So I would assume um, we would have have this as a, a normal everyday use of product. It's, it's very empowering when you, know, you have a capability provided, whether it's by central IT or somebody else to access the data. But, you know, it'd be very frustrating if you you have this beautiful thing built for you, but you don't know how to use it. We want, we are going to, as Microsoft and others, going to help build this capability of the data being available. And now we're going to train end users so that they can go answer their own questions, right? It's very important, you know, both for the adoption, but also this nice cycle of I as the end user, the business unit can give better requirements to IT on what I need out of the data and what I need out of the availability of the data if I know how to use it. Right. right. You know, instead of just instead of describing the dashboard of the run chart, I can actually have, you know, a detailed conversation around, well, you know, what trend, what trending I might need in the data, what additional attributes that I might need added. It's like, hey, can you add this demographic data or can we pull in, you know, the market data that compares our sales to competitor sales now that I can do this. So it's richer conversations, richer collaboration that, you know, you're talking about when you go into the training aspect. Yeah, and I would like to add also that eventually, as we continue to build out these products, we want mm -hmm. there to be less and less training and really make it so self-service that anyone mm -hmm. can use the tools. So, you know, there's there's areas where some people can, but then in areas where, you know, there's still some areas for improvement, we want to keep improving the products so that somebody that, you know, uses Word, you can just go right in and create a document. We want people to be able to do that with our other products as well, as much as they can. Awesome. All right, Christine, what advice would you give to someone starting off in your area of expertise? Well, actually, yeah, let me back up a second on that one, because you have had many hats in your career. So, yeah. you know, right now you are this technical specialist. So to quick context for everybody on that question, could you mind just giving a quick history of Christina on what your different areas of expertise has been, and then that would help frame up the, your answer to that question. Oh, absolutely. So, I, I mean, if you want to go way, way back, I started out as a, as a graphic <laughs> designer. <laughs> so I'm, I'm totally not, I mean, not even thinking that I was going to be in any kind of a field like this. So I started yeah. out uh, doing print advertising, and then I got this role working for AT&T, my first role as a web developer. So I think getting into mm. web development is what really sparked me getting more into this this technical role. So I was a developer for many years, so working for a big organization. And then after mm -hmm. that, I, I spun up my career into a director role. I got involved in marketing and then marketing actually spinned up analytics for me. So that was kind of my first taste of really getting mm. into analytics, especially when it came to, you know, customer satisfaction and so forth. And then understanding what our demographics were and how to advertise for that. Then I moved again and I got back into development. So, you know, like my, my road has been changing and then I did a lot of consulting work. And as I continued into the consulting path, that's where I got more in and kind of enmeshed with data and also app development. So that kind of spun me into where I am today by 
getting into those developer roles, doing some marketing and analytics, actually some sales too, because I did do some e-commerce work and then coming into, into this field. So that's kind of where I started out. And what I could say, you know, for what I'm doing now and from what I've experienced in the past is that you really mm-hmm. need to stay organized, stay on top of the technology, continue to educate yourself. That's really important. And, you know, and be patient with the issues you face because this is an ever-growing tool, all the tools that we have that are low-code, no-code. And you have to really look at that big picture and, and look towards what that future is going to bring. And I just say, focus on AI. <laughs> I, I'm promoting <laughs> AI, focus on it because that's definitely gonna be yeah, a big part of yeah. our future. I think it, there's this yin and yang between the different kind of meandering and interesting steps your career has taken. Uh, and so it it can seem almost antithetical to say stay organized because that was probably not, you know, a 20-year-old Christina probably did not organize that journey. Yeah, you learn a lot over time. But, yeah, yes. But, but the point, but, you know, knowing you, you probably stayed organized in every step, right? And so you know, even if you didn't plan the bigger picture, you were always prepared or did your best in each spot. And then that when new opportunities came up, you were prepared for that next step. Yes. So, so I think that, so, so that's just a quick context on like be organized makes sense, even if you didn't exactly plan every step in that, in that picture. Yep. It's like emergency preparedness, right? Like we organize, we don't know what's going to happen, you know, and that's kind of like what life is. Life is just one big emergency preparedness. Mayor Try badge. to back it up as much <laughs> as you can. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I definitely understand. That's what we all through. So, oh, it's absolutely. So, Christine, what is something that everyone should either stop or start doing now? What What do you observe? Well, I'm going to focus on the center of excellence because that's really a big part of our conversation here. And mm-hmm. we, we we need to see the signs. Like when, when we're working with organizations and we see that sprawl, that not to ignore the fact that center of excellence is, a, is an amazing tool to organize. Mm-hmm. And that's why I say organization, right? So there's a lot of struggles that organizations take. And what you should do is just start making plans because as data continues to grow, you need to find a way to maintain it and give it the attention that it needs so that projects don't go unorganized and governance doesn't run amok. You know, go off the rails is what I want to say. <laughs> and and we can kind of mitigate a lot of the common issues that are currently happening and make sure that we have the the right support, even from a hardware and software perspective and 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 get a, a good group of experts together to make this happen. There's an interesting quote, and I'm going to throw this at you to see your your reaction to it. Actually comes from Picasso, but I think it applies a lot to governance and that learn the rules like a pro so you can break them like an artist. <laughs> and and I think that applies here because it's been my observation when you walk into something that has no structure whatsoever, how do you know who's developing the masterpieces? Because if there's no structure, no way to organize, you know, all these different innovations that are happening out there, you have to go find ways to understand what interesting questions and interesting things people are pursuing. And so you have to spend all this time trying to catalog every, all the activity your insight into what others are having or insights takes a lot longer. And so as somebody that loves to be the rule breaker, I love the rules. So I know what I'm breaking, right? It's like, I'd like to know when I'm stepping out of bounds. 
And I think that's the same thing, you know, when, when it comes to governance is there always, always has to be times when people break the rules, right? Because market changes, customers change, you're going to have to break the rules in pursuit of what's changing outside. But if you don't know what the rules are, how do you know what you're breaking? How do you know what you're going against? How do you know what the patterns are that have been past successful, um, but then need to be changed that we can be future successful? So not sure how you react to that quote. You can use it however you want. Um, that's obviously not my quote, but I, but I do think it applies a lot to what we do in like the governance aspect. Yeah, we are always looking to identify who those people are when we're looking at organizations. Who are the, the we call them like citizen developers and what are they currently doing? And a, a lot of times we, we do that just by tracking through dashboards and so forth, but it's a lot of interviews too. Like we do a lot of persona interviews to really understand our users. So we, we have different categories of personas that we'll, we'll look at and then we'll ask for those resources to join a call with us so we can ask them questions on what's happening. And even if there's someone that can just represent an entire group for us, so that we could figure out, okay, so what are you doing with your data? What are, what are the things that we need to look at? But that's typically how we do it. It's really definitely persona-based. Back to collecting information about all the user base in the organization mm -hmm. to help guide them on new things and forward. Christina, you are a very multifaceted person. You do things besides just focus on Power BI and analytics mm -hmm. and centers of excellence and helping organize the world. You know, what else do you, what other areas of interest and, and what, what, what do you want people to know about what you do outside of work or related to work? Oh, sure. So I'm part of a, uh, a group within Microsoft called Women of Microsoft. It's a community that promotes a cultural journey for increasing inclusion and we're representation of, of women. And we do things like lead seminars and workshops and events. And what we're doing is we're trying to help uh, women promote themselves in their careers. So we're helping to mm -hmm. give uh, guidance, support, uh, opportunities uh, to grow within Microsoft. So that's more internal to what I'm doing. But then externally, I also am part of Million Women Mentors, which is an outside network that we, we dedicate to girls and women um, that are pursuing uh, STEM careers. So we do things like mentorship. We, we, we host a lot of different events and we also help um, others throughout the country. We also have divisions that are state and localized. One in particular, I was a, a judge for several years for the state of Connecticut Lieutenant Governor's Computing Challenge, where I actually, there are people, there are actually kids from third grade through 12th that were doing science projects, well, they're STEM projects, where I got a chance to mm. see their submissions. And what I would do is I would go through them and I would give them certain scores. And then obviously whoever had scored highest would get a would get recognition. And then we would go to the Capitol for that recognition at the at the end of the session, which is was which was in the springtime. But it was really fun. You know, that's something I did as an yeah. outside, but with my expertise in the technical areas such as, you know, web development, it was in creating apps. That's where a lot of it was focused on, but it was great because being a judge that I got a chance to see quite a bit of innovation from young minds. Well, Christina, it's been awesome having you on. I really appreciate you making the time today. And when, if anybody wants to connect with you, they may reach out on LinkedIn. Yep. That'd be the best way. Awesome. Well, thank you. Uh, it was great having you on today. Thank you. Thank you for listening and being an advocate of the data culture community. Curiosity intersected with data can inform and inspire change for the betterment of all. Let's build cultures to make this happen. 
If you have a topic, want to be a guest or chat, reach out to me, Sid Atkinson, or my co-host Lee Harper on LinkedIn via DM or via the Data Culture Podcast LinkedIn group. If you haven't already subscribed to this podcast, please do so anywhere you get podcasts. Be sure to join our LinkedIn group to engage with your fellow data culture changemakers and visionaries. Thanks again for listening. 